It's good to be back. For, for those of you who didn't know, our family went down to see uh, my wife's family in San Diego, California. I know you feel very bad for us that that's where we have to go to visit family. It's just coincidence that it was planned in the m- middle of winter. No, it wasn't. But thank you all for your prayers. We hadn't been down there to see family in four years. So it was a, a trip we actually planned a year ago. And uh, it exceeded our expectations. We, we every night went to bed thanking God for how he'd taken care of us and his uh, favor was on us. So we were really grateful for that. Uh, I know many of you asked how it was. And thank you for praying and thinking about us. It's, it's good to be back here and to be with you. We are uh, in the middle of a series in the book of Job, and uh, there's different ways you can go through a series in the book of Job. You could just preach sequentially through every chapter of the book. That would have us about a year in Job, which would be a really rich, beneficial thing, but I thought probably a shorter series might be appropriate. So what I'm doing is I'm going to uh, preach on chapters 3 through 26, which is one unit, where Job and those three friends interact, go back and forth, that kind of forms the bulk of the book. I'm going to preach on that whole section today, and then over the next few weeks I'm going to come back and do a few important chapters from that so that we get kind of an in-depth, we're doing kind of broad look today, and then we'll do in-depth over the next few weeks. So that's how we're handling it. I'm going to start by uh, reading from um, the beginning of that dialogue, so if you would uh, open up to Job chapter 2, and uh, that's on page 418, if you're using the Pew Bible. If you're not using the Bible in the Pew, don't use that page number. But I'm going to read from chapter 2, 11, all the way through the end of chapter 3. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Job 2, 11 through 3, 26. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night... Let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let the hope, let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. And kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. 
There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not. And dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly are glad when they find the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, I believe you have a word for us this morning. Because we've just read your word and we know you speak. And also because the themes that are in this passage of Scripture are so relevant to so many lives that are here today. I ask that you would help me to be faithful and clear in how I present what's here, what you've said. I don't want people to hear my voice. I want them to hear yours. And we collectively pray, Lord, that you would help us by your Spirit to hear, to listen. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As a pastor, I've seen a lot of people who are dealing with intense pain and suffering. And when I'm in those situations, one of the phrases that I hear the most is... I just don't know how people deal with these things without Christ. It's a true and profound statement. Because I've watched firsthand that the people who have uttered these words have felt the tender love of Christ and drawn comfort from the profound truth of who Christ is and what He has done on the cross. And that love and those truths carry them Sometimes through the most wretched of circumstances. But there's another reality I see. There are people who claim to have Christ. Who wilt under the intense weight of suffering. The suffering destroys them. So while it's true... I just don't know how people deal with these things without Christ. What I'm saying is that there are some people who say they have Christ who don't deal with these things. Perhaps you've seen them. Some carry a bitterness. Maybe it's towards God. Maybe it's toward the church. Or maybe it's towards other people. Their family. Some turn against God with an intense hatred. Still others become one of those people who's perpetually needy, always the victim, an unconscious manipulator. It's not enough that you believe in God. What you believe about God is crucial. It's not as simple as the equation of, of an equation as Christians have it good when we go through suffering, and non-Christians have it bad. Now, at a certain level, at least seemingly, when life is sailing along smoothly, it's true, what you believe might not seem like it makes all that much of a difference. Hey, as long as we all have Jesus, we're okay. But when the intense trials hit, it's not enough simply to believe in God. What you believe about Him What I believe about him is everything. Imagine you have some clay and you have a mold that you're trying to get it to uh, take shape. shape, And you put the, the clay on top of that mold. 
if you just let it sit there without any pressure, eventually gravity slowly causes that clay to go down into the mold. And it takes maybe a little bit of the shape that's down there. But if you apply a bit of pressure, or even a lot of pressure, the mold that's underneath that clay will quickly shape that clay so that it becomes conformed to the image of that mold, right? Well, you can think of that mold as our theological system, what we believe about God, how we view God. And sure, if you put ourselves, the clay, right on top of that mold, and it's, it's a distorted or twisted mold, eh, we'll maybe slowly take that shape, but it doesn't affect us all that much. But when you apply the pressure of suffering upon us, that mold quickly shapes us. And if it's distorted or off, that will shape us in unhealthy ways. The book of Job powerfully teaches us these truths. In the pages that we're going to be looking at today, which runs from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 26, we're introduced to Job and his three friends. Now, they share much in common in their view of God. Both Job and his friends believe in God. Both Job and his friends believe that God is sovereign, that is, in complete control over the affairs of men. Both Job and his friends believe that God looks out for the poor and the helpless. And we could probably pick out a few other places where they agree. But though they share much in common, they actually have profoundly different views of God. Job's friends view God as a motivation for good living and a means to a better life on this earth. But Job sees God as the sovereign creator, a being far greater in wisdom and power than himself, who deserves worship regardless of what he provides. So those are the two molds that you have underneath his friends and Job himself. And as these two views of God come under the weight of the suffering Job is bearing, the outcomes that we see could not be more opposite. In Job's friends, we see the failure of a mechanical, God exists for me theology. And in Job, we see the beauty of a rich, God-fearing relationship with God Almighty. So I want to dig into these chapters and show you what I mean. But before we dig into these 24 chapters, we need to get our bearings. It's a lot of scripture to cover, so I want to just kind of begin by setting the stage. As we saw in our last few weeks in Job, Job has just experienced the most intense suffering one can imagine. His whole family has been lost. All his wealth has been lost. So family but his wife. All his, all his uh, children have been lost. All his wealth has been lost. He's lost his health. He's lost respect. And he's left in the ash heap, digging at his sores. We know all this has happened because Satan was mocking God, saying Job only worships you because of what, you can get out, what he gets out of it. And in the end, God shows Satan that his mockery was not justified because Job continues to worship God, though he gets nothing out of it. So then, three of Job's closest friends decide to drop what they're doing. They've heard that a great evil has befallen Job, and they come to him from three different corners of the earth. And they see him from a distance. And even though it's from a distance, they can just tell the misery that's befallen him. They don't even recognize him. He looks so bad. And so they tear their garments, they put dust on their heads, and they weep with him. And they sit for seven days and nights with him in silence, sharing his misery with him. Sometimes people joke, you know, or maybe not even joke, I think they're trying to make a point that Job's friends did good the first seven days and then they opened their mouths and that's when the trouble came. There's a certain truth in that, but that's not what Job's trying to teach us. You see, they're not the first to open their mouth. 
Job's the first to open their mouth. They sit and wait for Job to speak, and it's only after Job speaks that then the different theologies they have start to come into bear. So Job is the first to break the silence. But as we read, it's not a profound theological statement. He's not dealing with the question of why bad things happen to good people. He's not directing his anger at God or at his friends. He's just saying, my life stinks and I wish I was never born. It's so bad right now, I wish I weren't alive. I don't know if you've ever been that low, where you felt that way. But here, one of the heroes of Scripture felt that way and gave voice to that. It doesn't mean he was tempted to take his own life because he knew that God, it's God's to give and take away. But he was in that abject misery where he wished he wasn't alive. But what's interesting, after, after Job's lament about how horrible his life is, his friends take him to task. Look at chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. His first friend speaks... And one of the first things he says, in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? He says, Job, who's ever had something like this happened that was actually innocent in the matter? They argue over and over that Job is suffering Because he is so unrighteous. Now we, as the readers, know it's just the opposite. He's suffering because he is so righteous. God knows that what they're saying is just the opposite. And Job knows that what they're saying is actually just the opposite. But that remains their persistent charge throughout these 24 chapters. Over those 24 chapters, they repeatedly lay the charge against Job, and after each assault, Job responds. That's the basic cycle. So there's these three friends. One speaks, Job responds. The next one speaks, Job responds. The third one speaks, Job responds. They do that once. Then they do it twice, and then they do it a third time, though the third time, the third friend doesn't get to speak, which we'll see why later. So, Job's friends, as you look at their respective speeches throughout these 24 chapters, show very little movement in their speeches. They, they keep basically saying the same thing over and over. The only change is they become more entrenched and vicious in their positions, as we'll see. But Job, on the other hand, shows a compelling movement in his speeches. He begins in total despair, but slowly gains more and more hope. And he closes with a full-on refutation of his friend's view of God. So we're just getting our bearings, right? We're, We're seeing what's the stage that started this whole thing, that set the stage. And we're saying, okay, what's the big picture that was going on in these 24 chapters? The last thing we need to know in order to read these chapters is something God says in chapter 42. It's the very end of Job. If you're using your pew Bibles, it's on page 446. We're at chapter 42, verse 8. I'm actually going to read the very end of verse 8, which is at... Um, it's at the very end of page 446. He says, And my servant Job, he's talking to their friends, these three friends. He says, My servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. So he tells his friends they have folly, and this is what he says, For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So God's assessment of this whole discussion is that Job's friends have spoken wrongly about him and Job has spoken rightly about him. Now, it doesn't mean that everything Job's friends say is false, 
nor does it mean that everything Job says is true. But in terms of what each one believes about God, the mold at the bottom, the friends are wrong, and Job is right. So that gives us a paradigm for understanding and reading these complex chapters and exchanges. So now that we've got our bearings, I want to take a little time and look at his friends, what they say. Now, some of you have read through the book of Job before. You've studied it on your own or you've read it in your daily Bible readings. And and one of the challenges when you get to the friend's view is that some of what they say about God sounds right. You felt this tension as you read through it. You're like, okay, I know Job's friends are the bad guys, but I actually believe what they're saying here. There's countless examples. Well, I'll just give you one right at the beginning since we're, maybe your Bibles are still open at the beginning. Chapter 5, the first speech. In verses 8 and 9, Eliphaz says, As for me, I, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. That sounds good. Or just look a little further down in verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Well, that sounds something like right out of Hebrews chapter 12. This is where things get a little bit tricky. Because Job's friends who are saying, Job, no matter how much you say you're innocent, we know you're guilty. We look at that and we think, we know from the rest of the Bible that everybody sins. And we also know from the book of Romans that the penalty for even the smallest sin because it's rebellion against God is to be eternally cut off from God. So Job's no exception. So... Aren't Job's friends right? See how it's tricky? Or we think about how Job's friends are are telling him, look, God rewards the righteous, so just keep looking to him and he'll reward you. And we know from the Bible that there's a principle that when we walk in God's ways, it, it usually, though not always, results in blessing. We know God works all things for good. Even the hardest things, He works for good for those who are following Him. So again, we're going, what's really wrong with Job's view? Or Job's friend's view? Well, I want to show you that they make two crucial errors. When Job says, or when God says they spoke wrong about me, there's two main errors they make. The first thing is that they assume that Job has done some heinous sin in order to deserve such intense suffering. So early on, it sounds like, yeah, they're just saying, hey, nobody's innocent, so just whatever you've done, even if it's small, confess it to God, and maybe things will get on the right track. But as they progress, you get to see their real hearts. So I want to look at each one of their friends toward the end, one of their last speeches, and see what they say. So flip ahead to chapter 18. We're going to look at Bildad first. It's on page 428, or 429 is where I'll be reading from. Chapter 18, verse 21. Bildad's just said a bunch of things that can happen to somebody that are bad. And a lot of them are the things that just happened to Job. And he says, Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. That is a sting in Job's heart. Bildad is saying, You're unrighteous. You do not know God. It's a strong charge. Now look what Zophar says, just a little bit ahead in chapter 20, verse 19. Just flip the page. Again, Zophar does the same thing. He describes some bad things that happen to people, and they just happen to correspond quite nicely with the things that have happened to Job. 
And then he gives the reason these bad things have happened in verse 19. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. Do you see what Zophar really thinks Job must have done? Trampling on the backs of the poor to get the great wealth he'd accumulated. Dealing dishonestly and stealing to have so much. And then most pointedly, look at what Eliphaz, the ringleader, says in chapter 22, verses 5 through 9. Up until this point, they've just kind of spoken about this unrighteous person, and the correspondences are are done by inference. But Bildad at the end, or Eliphaz at the end, drills it down. Listen to what he says. It's appalling when you know how righteous Job was. 22.5 Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless fatherless were crushed. Wow. That's what they really think of him. This isn't a, hey, everybody does bad things, and so we all kind of deserve the bad that comes. No, their equation looks something like this. Horrible suffering equals horrible sinner. They're not saying, hey, look, Job, we all sin. You're no exception. Maybe God is disciplining you because he loves you. Far from it. They're saying that Job's a particularly terrible kind of sinner. He must have been really, really bad to deserve what he's getting from God. Now, this all stems in their mind from a fairly flat and mechanical view of God. Remember, this is about what you believe about God. This is about that mold that's underneath. They think God is here to prevent people on earth from doing bad things by bringing ill upon those who do bad and bringing blessing upon those who do good. Sometimes you talk to people and they're like, oh, all religions are basically the same. And this is what they think all religions are. They all believe in some transcendent power, some big power out there, who's there to try and make people be good and not be bad, by punishing the bad people and rewarding the good. That's the basic view. (laughs) Of course they're going to be frustrated and upset when they see bad things happening to good people and say, well, what is up with that God? Well, maybe they need to look at the Christian God, the God of the Bible, the true God, and see how different he is. So that's how they think. He's the cosmic carrot on the stick. The divine being that causes the righteous to prosper and the wicked to suffer, not just in general, but as a rule, every time. So if you're looking for a picture to capture this view of God, I think it's helpful to think of a lever. He's mechanical. Pull this, that comes out every time. Do good, ching, get blessing. Do bad, ching, get hardship. It's that simple. But this distorted view of God that they have comes into greater clarity as as you take their view of Job as this horrible, horrible man and compare it to the advice they give. This is what's really startling and jarring in, in their advice. Keep in mind, they think Job stole from poor people, trampled on the backs of orphans, took the last shirt off of a man's back, I mean, they think he's really, really bad, that all his wealth and reputation was a farce. He gained it dishonestly. But here's their advice to him. Go back to chapter 8. This is the kind of advice they give to him over and over and over. We're just going to look at the one instance of it in chapter 8, verses 5 to 7. Bildad says, If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy... If you are pure and upright, 
Surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginnings was small, the latter days will be very great. Basically, their argument is this. Ask God for mercy and you'll get everything back and maybe even more. Now again, it's tricky, right? Some of what they're saying sounds right on the surface. We know that when we, when we sin, we ought to repent and turn to God. And we know God is a God of mercy and we can cry out to Him for mercy. And and he often does restore the things that were lost. He always forgives. He always accepts. And there's often restoration and healing that comes with that. But remember what they think about Job. They think he's been really bad. And they also understand through their exchanges that Job doesn't believe he's been really bad. So they're asking him to fake it before God in order to get material blessing. You got that? They're saying, Job, just go through these motions, regardless of what you think. Go through these motions, and you'll get material blessings in return. Okay, Job, they're saying, you don't think you've done wrong. Fine. But regardless, tell God that you've done terrible things, and then at least you'll get everything back that you're missing. Now, there's two pastors that really help me, two of Job's responses to them that really help me understand that that's what they're saying. So I know I'm taking you to a lot of different passages, but I want you to see what I'm saying is actually there in the Scriptures. So um, chapter 6, verses 22 through 24. This is Job speaking now. He's speaking to God, but it's his response to his friends. Chapter 6, 22 through 24. He says, Have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hands? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. In other words, he says to God, Am I asking you for money? Am I asking you for for you to restore everything I lost? No. All I want is you to teach me and help me understand. Remember, Job is the one who, when he lost it all, said, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came into this world, naked I'll return. He's not focused on the material possessions. His friends are, do this and you'll get it all back. Guys, I'm not asking God for all those things, he says. I just want to understand what's going on. The one other response that's so helpful, just a few pages ahead in chapter 13. Again, this is Job speaking. Now he's speaking directly to his friends, starting at verse 7. He says, chapter 13, verse 7, Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him? As one deceives a man, he will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. What he's saying there is he's saying, look, you're trying to trick God. You're trying to flatter him. You're trying to show partiality toward him in an insincere way to get what you want. That's what you're advising me to do. But God knows the heart. You can't fool him. When I was in graduate school... um, I took a class with a professor, and the professor and I didn't exactly see eye to eye on things. And uh, I wasn't doing very well in the class. I'd write my papers based on my convictions, and I'd turn them in. I'd come back with poor grades. And one of my friends who shared my convictions was doing much better in the class. And he said, James you got to let your convictions go here. Just write what he wants you to write so they can see you get what he's saying. Give him what he wants. That's what I do when I get these good grades. So I did. I was like, okay, I'm going to do it his way. I'm going to write something his way. So I did one of my later papers. 
And sure enough, I got the good grade. That's what Job's friends are calling on Job to do. Okay, you and God don't see eye to eye. Fine. Don't worry about that. He's God. Just go with what he's saying. Write your little paper and you'll get your A. Your A is what you want after all. So if you write the paper and give it to him, you get your A. Everybody's happy. God heard what he wanted. You got what you wanted. Everything's okay. So so if the first error in Job's friends is, is that they assume that Job has committed some horrible and devious sin, their second error is to view God as something to be manipulated in order to get what you want. These two errors, well, horrible circumstances must be horrible sinner, and here's your, how you should respond, manipulate God to get what you want. These two errors stem from one false view of God. Job's friends view God as a giant lever in the sky by mechanically rewarding ching-ching good and punishing evil ching-ching. He serves as a motivation for good living, but he is also there in their view to give us all a better life on this earth. So if you just learn how to manipulate the lever just the right way and play the game the right way, you get the good stuff. This mechanical God-exists-for-me theology is exposed as a failure on the pages of Job. Not just in God's final assessment like we saw, but even as you read, even as you read the book, you become disgusted where it takes them. In chapter 19, Job says, All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I love have turned against me. Job's friends have become his worst enemies. Their rigid, mechanical, and misguided theology has led them to destroy their closest friend, even while he suffers. What we believe about God is incredibly important. So the book of Job roundly condemns this lever view of God. So why does that view persist amongst us today? Do do we serve God for what we can get out of it? Do we think that God's primary job is to serve as some sort of external motivation to help people be good and to suppress those who would otherwise be evil? Are we willing to go through certain insincere motions thinking we can flatter God and endear Him to us? Not knowing that He he knows our very hearts. It's this kind of theology that's so rampant in evangelicalism and it will not hold up under the intense trials we can go through. So So just think, you're going through some intense trial. Okay, God. Uh, I believed. I believed I would be healed. I prayed in faith. I spoke positive words. I didn't let any negative words come into my mind. I pulled the lever. But I wasn't healed. God, you've let me down. Are you even real? Or, Or maybe I just didn't pray with enough faith. Or Maybe I just need to pull that lever a little harder and I'll get what I want destroys you. Or God, I followed you because there was a certain kind of family that I wanted to have. It's a family I've always dreamed of. But now, my husband's gone. My kids are a mess. And I'm struggling to pay the bills. Why did you let me down? I pulled the lever, but I didn't get the outcome I bargained for. You see, what we believe about God is so important. Believe the wrong things, and suffering will tear you up. 
part of the drama in the book of Job, and particularly in these chapters, is whether Job will succumb to their theology. They're just barreling him, pummeling him. He had the right theology at the end of chapter, in the middle of chapter two, where he picked up. Will he, when his friends are through with him? Spoiler alert, he does. He doesn't cave to their theology. He holds to his convictions. He maintains his robust, vibrant belief about God. If Job's friends show us the failure of a wrong belief about God, Job shows us the beauty of right belief about God. And I just want to look real quickly at Job If you're, if you're looking for how Job views God, you know, the, the friends have this lever view. Maybe the best picture for Job is he views God somewhat like a hurricane. He's powerful and untamed, so much more vast than us. We are at his whim. But unlike a hurricane, he's worthy of our worship because of who he is. And unlike a hurricane, he can ultimately be trusted. That's what Job believes about God. That's the mold under him. And if that's the mold under him, what is the outcome when that pressure is applied? Where his friends stay static and become further entrenched in their positions, Job is dynamic, growing, and developing over the course of these chapters. I love that. Even in the poetry of of how these two speeches or sets of speeches interact, you see the beauty of of Job's view. He begins in complete despair. Four times he asks God to leave him alone. He asked over and over, why, why, why? But he doesn't stay there. Unlike his friends, he doesn't become more entrenched and get uglier. There's movement towards health. So early on, he says, is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me? In other words, I don't have the strength I need to bear up under what I'm bearing. But later, he says, yet the righteous holds to his way and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. In other words, he's getting stronger. Early on, he says, Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope. What is his hope early on? That it would please God to crush me. That he would loose his hand and cut me off. His only hope is death. But later, he says, If I hope for Sheol, or if I hope for the grave as my house, if I say to the pit, you are my father, where then is my hope? See, his hope has shifted. He's saying, now if I die, I lose my hope. His hope early on was that he would die, but now his hope has changed, and dying would cause him to lose it. And you see in chapter 16 and 19 that his hope is ultimately that God would vindicate him. That there is, there is a platform in heaven where his case is being heard. There's an advocate for him in heaven. And that even if it happens after he dies, he will ultimately be right before God. His, his faith and his integrity has not been misplaced. He is confident of that. And it's that confidence in a God who ultimately is just His character is ultimately good and for his own that carries him and gives him hope and allows him to to shift and change. We just got to look at one instance of this in in one of his very last speeches in chapter 23. Look there, it's on page 432 in the Pew Bible. 23 verses 3 to 6. He says in 23, verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find God 
that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. He would pay attention to me. Isn't that beautiful hope? No. Little me in this huge hurricane. And the huge hurricane would just contend with me and its power as this small leaf blowing. No. He would pay attention to me. Isn't that beautiful? Remember the drama of this section? Whose view will win the day? Will Job succumb to the anemic theology of his friends? Will he begin to treat God as a lever and deal with him insincerely in an attempt to get some sort of benefit out of him? Job doesn't buy into his friend's system. He maintains a right view of God. And so he's transformed. He goes from being a man in deep despair with no hope, holding God responsible for his suffering, to a man who is growing stronger based on a belief that God will deal with him justly in the end. I'm not much of a gardener. I know there's some of you who are. But if you take a plant that's not doing real well. You realize it's not doing real well maybe because of the soil it's in. So you you move it to good soil. That withering plant starts to flourish. But you can take a healthy plant and put it in unhealthy soil and pretty soon it's dying. That's chapters 3 through 26 of Job. You have this withering plant but it's in good soil. So as it grows, you see it flourishing. And then you have these seemingly healthy plants, but you're watching them wither as the story unfolds. What we believe about God is crucial. That's why it's interesting. Job's final, one of the last thing he does says to his friends is for a couple chapters goes on to try and show them the error of their theological system. Suffering Job, grieving Job takes time to refute their theology. And his friends have nothing to say in response ultimately. I mentioned that there's these three cycles. Well, in the third cycle, when Job really picks up steam to show them the error of their theology, says it just doesn't add up with the way the world works. Bildad, his response, his speech is only six verses long, really short. And Zophar doesn't even give his third speech. The mold undergirding Job proves to be the better mold. So the question for us is what mold undergirds us? And it needs to be more than simply, I believe in God or even I believe in Jesus. It needs to be a true view of Jesus that is shaped by the Scriptures. We need to believe more than Jesus died for me because I'm so wonderful and He didn't want to live without me. He came to make my life even better. And He's going to reward me with good stuff as long as I treat Him rightly. Instead, we need to believe in a God who is sovereign over a complex moral universe in which He's allowed good and evil to coexist and a world in which no one is exempt from its brokenness. And when we feel the pinch of that brokenness, we need to know that He can still be trusted and that He is still worthy of our worship. Job didn't know Jesus. But Job longed for some sort of way for the transcendent God to be just a bit near to him, to know his pain. Jesus is the answer to that longing. 
Job felt he couldn't speak to God because he was a sinner and God was so mighty and holy. What right does a sinful man have to speak to a holy God? Well, Jesus comes and he makes a way for us to go to God because he paid the due penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven. Job ultimately arrived at a confidence that he would at some day be vindicated. Perhaps long after he died, he thought. But he didn't know how it would work. Well, Jesus, on the cross, conquered sin and death so that ultimately when Jesus comes back, all things will be made right and everything will be brought to light. Job didn't have the cross. Job didn't have Jesus. But we do. That's why it's good we're going to take the last few minutes of our service to celebrate the Lord's table. And as we partake of this bread and this cup, which represent the body and blood of Jesus, let's commit ourselves to knowing Jesus rightly. Not just saying I believe, but knowing him rightly so that we too, like Job, can stand when the trials come. Let me pray. Father, thank you that this table is before us on this day after hearing this scripture and help us to know Jesus rightly. I pray in Christ's name, amen. I'd like to invite those forward who are going to be helping serve. We will be distributing uh, the bread and the cup together. The way we do it as a church is if you would hold the bread and the cup, then we'll take each of those together as a church to show our unity. This is a meal that is for people who have trusted Christ. If you're here today and that's not where you're at, you haven't embraced Christ and said, I'm following him, I'm pursuing him, just watch and see what we do, where we remember together what Jesus has done for us. And uh, maybe even God's going to move your heart today to say, I actually want to know what they know and be able to enjoy what they enjoy, their relationship with God. For the rest of us, we confess our known sin And we partake with joy because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us.